for convenience, the Bible is divided up into chapters and verses. And it's very helpful. We can find our way around the Bible. And originally, books weren't written like that. The problem with chapter divisions is that you can think sometimes you're going on to something completely new. Whereas what we see here in chapter 19 of uh, 1 Kings is that we follow straight on from chapter 18. And as I said uh, in the introduction there to the reading, that was the battle on Mount Carmel, Elijah's victory over the prophets of Baal, or maybe we should say God's victory over the non-existent Baal, And then Elijah running all the way to Jezreel ahead of Ahab as the Lord gave him strength. But now we have a very different picture at the start of chapter 19. And the first point, my my sermon title by the way for this is God's grace to Elijah. God's grace to Elijah. And the first point is that we have a hardened sinner in the first two verses. Our chapter opens with Ahab reporting to his evil wife Jezebel all the events which had taken place on Mount Carmel. Except that he doesn't actually recount all the events. He is selective in what he reports. You see... He reported all that Elijah had done and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. He seems to have missed out the crucial bit about the Lord intervening. Ahab doesn't mention the Lord in his report. It's all about Elijah. So why does he just concentrate on Elijah. Well, there are various opinions. I suspect he was just terrified of his wife's reaction if he mentioned the Lord intervening and proving that the gods that she worshipped, Baal, these were false gods. But the main issue is not the reason for Ahab failing to report everything that happened, but his wife's reaction we can imagine that there that afternoon as the rain came down she's thinking wonderful my Baal the rain god has sent rain and then her fury when she discovers that it was not Baal who sent rain it was the Lord she would have been enraged. So, what did she do now? Did she acknowledge the error of her ways? Oh, I'm not worshipping the true God after all. The God of Israel is the true God. Did she contact Elijah to find out more about this God that he (coughs) worships? No, of course not. And in her hardness of heart, she was like every other sinner hardened against the voice of God. Why do people not believe the gospel? Why do they not believe the gospel? Why do they not believe that this world was designed and it 
isn't the result of some random big bang and a billion, billion, billion chance occurrences. It's ridiculous. How can an intelligent person believe that? Hardness of heart. What more proofs do you need about the truth of the gospel? That Jesus died and rose from the dead and was seen, we're told in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, by 500 people at once, plus all the other resurrection appearances. Why do people try and explain away the miracles? It's hardness of heart. I, I saw something some years ago <coughs> on TV. There was a clip in the news by Fergus Walsh. Who, if you ever watch BBC News, will know Fergus Walsh. He's the health correspondent. Health? Or something connected with health. Anyway, he was in a hospital somewhere, could have been Birmingham, but... <laughs> The item was about 3D imaging of the brain. <laughs> and the technology is absolutely incredible that now scientists are able just to look at any part of your brain three-dimensionally and see what's going on in there. And uh, I googled the word brain at the end of this and I found straight away this. Can we map over... 125,000 trillion switches in the brain. 125, how many is that? 100 billion neurons, close to a quadrillion connections. A quadrillion is a trillion with three more zeros on the end. I had to look that one up. And then this article went on to say, and we don't even fully understand a single cell. Huh. And how did Fergus Walsh com conclude the news item? He said, truly the brain is a wonder of evolution. <laughs> and I think that was probably the most stupid comment I have ever heard in a news programme. The evidence for a creator is overwhelming. Why do people not believe? Because their hearts are as hard as Jezebel's. As soon as you acknowledge as a creator that there is a God in heaven, then you know that you've got a responsibility towards him and you don't want that responsibility. You want to run your life your way and not be told by anybody else how to run your life, even God himself. Jezebel worshipped Baal because she wanted to. We sometimes wonder how people can remain unmoved for so long. The hardness of the human heart. So this evil queen issued a death threat against Elijah. But in the providence of God, she gave him 24 hours notice. And said, by this time, tomorrow. So secondly, we see a despondent prophet. A despondent prophet. And this is where we start to run into some problems. Um, first of all, we read in verse 3, when he saw that. Now, saw, I believe, is the correct translation. But there are two very similar Hebrew words. 
I don't read Hebrew, I'm going by what the commentators say. Right? But the other one means to fear. And so you'll find some translations of the Bible say Elijah feared or Elijah was afraid and ran away. But uh, it seems that he saw was a better trans translation. So while it is true that Elijah ran for his life, I suggest he wasn't quite the coward that some people make him out to be. You see, what was it that he saw? He saw that in spite of Mount Carmel and the victory over the prophets of Baal, Baal nothing had changed in Israel. He probably saw that the people's repentance was skin deep. Jezebel was still in power. Ahab hadn't stood up to her. And so Elijah ran for his life. One commentator writes this. He wanted to die for he was broken. He did not wish to die at Jezebel's hand for that would be judged her victory. Hence his flight. But south of the proverbial southernmost city of the southern kingdom, let me explain that. The, the Jews had this saying from Dan to Beersheba. So Dan was the most northerly city, Beersheba was most southerly. So it's like saying from Land's End to John of Groats. Okay? So south of the proverbial southernmost city of the southern kingdom in the wilderness of Judah, where none would give Jezebel credit for his death, there he begged Yahweh, the Lord, to take his life. There is one failing, I believe, that we can justly criticise for. There's no mention of the word of the Lord. I remember how many times in Elijah's life the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord sent him to the brook Kerith to be ferried by ravens. The word of the Lord came to him and sent him to the widow of Zarephath. The word of the Lord came to him and told him to go back and confront Ahab. And here, there's no mention of the word of the Lord. By the way, some commentators criticise Elijah for running away from a mere woman. Those of you of a certain age will remember that we had a mere woman as a Prime Minister. And I'm not thinking of Liz Truss. Would you ever have described Margaret Thatcher as a mere woman. Well, think of Margaret Thatcher ten times over, and you've got Jezebel. So she was not a mere woman. So we see his, first of all, here we saw him run away, his flight. But now we see his prayer. So after he'd reached Beersheba, which incidentally was a hundred miles from Jezreel and well out of Jezebel's reach, he went into the desert and prayed to die. He was a despondent prophet. Why did he go to the desert? Perhaps the answer lies in his prayer. He says, I am no better than my ancestors, at the verse 4. You see, the desert that he ran to, south of Beersheba, 
was the desert that the Israelites had crossed when they left Egypt and went into the promised land. It's where all the unbelieving Jews died because they refused to enter the promised land. And perhaps that's then, uh, those are the ancestors that Elijah is thinking about. He's in the desert and he knows that's where the unbelieving Jews had come out of Egypt. Remember, only Joshua and Caleb entered the promised land. They died and he's saying, I'm no better than they are. He's feeling a complete and utter failure. And he's alone. He's being honest before God. He's not like we sometimes are when you say to a friend, oh, I'm such a failure. And why are you saying that? Because you know your friend's going to say, no, you're not. You know, you're not really a failure. I can't do anything. Oh, yes, you can. You know, you're good at such and such. And it's just a way of getting a bit of a sympathy, really. No, this was Elijah pouring his heart out to God. What a blessing it is that God doesn't always give us what we ask for. He asked for God to take his life. And God said, no. Elijah lay down and went to sleep. God didn't take his life. And note nor did Elijah take his own life. How tragic these days that so many young people are taking their lives. What was it I heard last week? There are 107 suicides in this country of young men, mostly young men under the age of 35. What a waste of life, what a tragedy that is. And it's wrong. It is wrong. But it's sad that people get into that state, isn't it? So then let's see, thirdly here, God's tenderness. How does God deal with his despondent prophet? Well, he certainly doesn't answer his prayer. He sends an angel to touch him, no doubt to wake him up, and he gives him a meal. And there, by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Ah, a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. Does that remind you of anything? Because if you go back to chapter 17, they're exactly the same words that we read concerning the widow of Jarephath. That's what was preserved there. That's what preserved Elijah's life there at her home. So it's interesting. It's those same words which come back. And so then Elijah goes to sleep because he's so tired and the angel comes back and gives him another meal. It's a lesson for us, isn't there, here? Sometimes what somebody needs is just a bit of practical help. Food and drink were what Elijah needed to restore his spirits. And uh, sometimes that's what need, is needed. When somebody's feeling low, and I'm deliberately not saying depressed, because there is such a thing, a medical condition, clinical depression. But there are also a lot of people who say, oh, I am depressed. No, you're not. You're having a bad day. You're feeling under the weather. But you're not clinically depressed. And there's a difference between the two. 
uh, one of our elders' sons, that is to say, yeah, a son of one of our elders, uh, is a trained clinical psychologist and apparently he gets very angry at times with people coming for help when they really are wasting his time which should be spent on real urgent cases. No, Elijah was feeling low, but he needed a good sleep and a good meal. And now it gets interesting with the angel's second visit, because he says, arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you, in verse 7. What journey is this? Because Elijah apparently had come to the end of the road. He'd gone there to die. Well, it's the journey to Horeb. Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. There's no evidence that Elijah set out for Horeb. As I say, he set out for the desert to die. But he's being sent on to Horeb. Now, Horeb is another name for Mount Sinai the place where the Ten Commandments were given. So if this angel is feeding Elijah and giving something to drink to strengthen him and sending him on to Horeb, what does this prove? It proves that Elijah was in the Lord's will. He was back in the Lord's will. So those people... Some commentators are absolutely vitriolic about Elijah running away. But Elijah here is back in the Lord's will. Why did he go to Elijah, uh, Horeb? What does he do there? Now he's back on track. Back to this mountain of God. I think there are some interesting parallels here between Elijah and Moses. Not, ex- not an exact correspondence, but we're meant to see them, aren't we? <clears throat> Sinai was where the law was given and the law was broken and the golden calf was made. What do we find here is Elijah's complaint in verse 10. The children of Israel have forsaken your covenant as they did in the time of Moses and they've torn down your altars. Moses was on the mountain 40 days. Elijah took 40 days to get to that mountain. And of course the Israelites wandered for 40 years. There was this correspondence in the use of the word 40. And then we find in Mo- with Moses, if you Look, don't look it up now, but I'm sure you're familiar with it. Exodus 33, verses 19 and 22. The Lord passed by Moses. He said to Moses, you cannot see my face, but hide in the rock. I will pass by. And the Lord passed by. And what's happening here? The Lord is about to pass by Elijah and speak to him. So there's a clear parallel here. On that mountain, there was a covenant intercession by Moses. He pleaded with the Lord not to destroy his people. What we have here 
in 1 Kings is covenant accusation by Elijah. Your people have broken the covenant. And that's going to lead to judgment. So my third heading is this, the divine presence, which we see from verses, second, end of verse 9 to verse 14. So as we move on to this dialogue between God and Elijah, we have another problem. What is the tone of voice? What is the tone of God's question? What are you doing here, Elijah? Is this angry? What are you doing here, Elijah? What is the tone? I believe that what God is doing here, and most commentators, it's fair to say, view this as a rebuke. God is pointing out that Elijah shouldn't be there. He should be back up north. I believe that... uh, God has authorised Elijah's journey. That's why he's fed him. He's equipped him for this journey to Sinai. And so this is, as Ralph Davis writes, an invitation to Elijah to pour out his heart to God. To pour out his heart. See, this is what Elijah does. He says, the... Israelites, children of Israel, have forsaken your covenant, your altars, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. He's pouring out his heart. It wasn't just Jezebel that he was running from. It was the whole situation of the Israelites. The whole corruption has really got him down. Davis asks some searching questions. Could you or I earnestly say such words? Do we really care that much about the infidelity of the professing church? And there's a lot of infidelity in the professing church. Do its doctrinal indifference and idolatrous pragmatism ever get us upset for God's sake? We're upset because the name of the Lord is not being honoured as it ought to be. Elijah claimed to have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. And God doesn't contradict him. He doesn't say, oh no you weren't. Strictly speaking, Elijah's not quite accurate. I alone am left. Oh no, we read beforehand about the prophet Obadiah, who had very bravely saved hundred prophets from Jezebel he put them into caves to remember and gave them food and drink he preserved them but uh, Elijah was the only one who was prepared to make a public stand Obadiah was terrified that he might be found out and in response to Elijah the Lord not only speaks to him but graciously passes him by as he had with Moses the wind the earthquake the fire were all instruments that God used here they were instruments that he could have used to destroy Israel 
He produced them, but it wasn't in them. There were instruments at his disposal. But perhaps the message to Elijah is this, that still small voice. It's God's word that he's going to use. And he, the prophet, would be his instrument as well. This still small voice, this gentle whisper, this quiet voice, there are various translations, aren't there? This still small voice. And after this revelation, we have a re repetition. You will have noticed as we read it. God repeats exactly the same question. And Elijah repeats exactly the same answer. So are we saying Elijah has learned nothing? I don't think so. I think here the Lord doesn't rebuke him, but he recommissions him. He gives him another job to do. And so the final heading here is a preserved remnant a preserved remnant there's a final parallel between Moses and Elijah remember that God gave Moses an assistant his name was Joshua and Joshua means God saves and Elijah was given Elisha and Elisha means the Lord saves so there's a final parallel there between the two. And he recommissions Elijah and tells him he's going to have a successor. Elijah's going to carry on the work that Elijah has begun. The Lord also says judgment is going to come. Elijah's been really concerned about this. You know, God, you're not doing anything about it. But Elijah's assessment of the condition of Israel, what we've read a couple of times there in verses 10 and 14, is accurate. God acknowledges it is accurate. And he says he's going to act in judgment in three ways. Hazael, king of Assyria, was going to attack from the outside. Jehu would be an internal political threat to Ahab's authority. And if anybody escaped the pair of them, Elisha would finish the job. God is going to judge Israel. And the message to us is that we are not to downplay God's warnings of judgment. We don't mustn't be deceived into believing that, ah, well, this is the God of the Old Testament, and of course, we have Jesus now, and everything has changed. And you hear people who ought to know better giving that sort of message from pulpits and on the radio and the TV. Jesus loves everybody, so we're all going to be fine in the end. Who spoke most about hell in the New Testament? The Lord Jesus more than anybody else and people try and you'll hear them try and uh, drive a, a wedge between Jesus on the one hand and the Apostle Paul on the other Jesus is all love Paul is all 
uh, is all anger and judgment. And it's not true. It isn't true. Nobody speaks more about the coming judgment than the Lord Jesus. And we have to take him seriously at his word. But also, there is a preserved remnant. Even when judgment comes, there is going to be a preserved remnant. The Lord said to Elijah, um, and we're looking here at verse 18, Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Uh, actually, I have reserved is probably not the best translation. The best translation would be I will reserve. So it's not just he's talking about the ten, the 7,000 now in Israel, but he's looking to the future as well. I will preserve. But does the number actually matter? Is it exactly 7,000? The number is probably symbolic. Seven, perfect number. Number of completeness. And the thousand. So God is saying, his faithful people, all of them, those in Israel now, and those when Elisha is prophesying, the Lord will preserve his one, his people. And so, we can finish this morning on a wonderful positive note the remnant will be preserved the Lord Jesus is building his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it and so whatever we as individuals might go through if you're a believer you will be preserved whatever the church is going through Yes, the people are suffering in Ukraine, but the church is growing. The church is being persecuted horribly in various places around the world. The Muslim world, China, terrible restrictions. The Lord will preserve the church. He will preserve his people and he will go on building his church. But are you part of that remnant? Are you one? who's put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can say, no matter what happens to me in my life, I know where I'm going. I may not know how I'm going to get there, but I know what my destination is, because the Lord will preserve me. So, are you feeling a bit low today? Some of you might be. Even though you're a Christian, you're not at your best. Pour out your heart to the Lord, as Elijah did. Tell him about your troubles. Are you zealous for the Lord God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ? Have you got Elijah's zeal? Are you zealous for the Lord's honour? Are you zealous to maintain the Lord's honour in the public sphere? Are you somebody who needs a bit of practical help? You know, you, you really could do with somebody doing a bit of painting for you or bringing you a meal or something like that don't be afraid to ask for it and as you as brothers and sisters in Christ looking out for one another and organising things so that practical help is always available 
but we thank God for that gospel. Remember, it is the true gospel. Christ is the one 